Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 17th, 2017. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, well... Tonight, we're going to have a, a new guest from Daily Coast, Kelly Masias. She's going to be our guest coming up in about 20 minutes. We're going to discuss um, – she's actually penned more than one article now on Daily Coast about the Alabama election. We're also going to talk to her about the firing of Omarosa, or actually it could be the exit. It could be the, the her quitting. You know, there's, there's two sides to that story apparently. Um, but nevertheless, I, I think I used the word exit from the White House. And we're going to discuss that as well. But there was an election that made a little bit of attention uh, nationally uh, last Tuesday. And we had been discussing this for quite some time because I think we actually were looking at this uh, election back when a lot of people expected it to be Luther Strange and Doug Jones, that it could be interesting to watch um, because of the environment we're in. And because Doug Jones was a very credible candidate, and we had no idea, I think, early on that Roy Moore would be the opponent, and that may have been what caused it to go down like it did as much as anything. Um, Tim, what were some of your thoughts? Well, here we have the first Democrat in a generation to win a Senate race in Alabama, pro-choice. What were the odds of that a year ago? Um, uh, I know you predicted this, uh, David, and Catherine almost hit it on the head. I, I know. Election night. Very good, Catherine. Uh, I was, I, I got to admit, though, I, I, I remain stunned uh, <laughs> that, that it all just happened. Uh, uh, some of the things that have been said in days since then are funny like our our, our friend uh, Roy Moore uh, who somehow still can't find it in his heart to concede he he told his supporters that when the vote is this close it's not over (laughs) it's it's over Uh, let, let me give him the numbers. Jones got 671,151 votes and Moore got 650,436 votes. Any way you slice, dice, or twist that, it's over. Ain't nothing going to change it. Ain't no massive voter fraud out there. That That's going to be a talking point. I mean, it, it, it it's over. Um, I thought it remarkable that 30% of the vote was black. That's a turnout that even exceeded uh, the Obama elections in 08 and 12. Uh, 96% of those folks uh, voted for Jones. Uh, uh, Moore's campaign strategy deflect and deny. I guess you call it, which is what Trump did. It didn't quite work. 51% of the voters over there said Moore was lying about, you know, the stuff with the teenagers. Uh, uh, it, it, it was quite the night. I actually, even though I had to be at work at four the next morning, I had to stay up for that one, guys. So I'm delighted. Um, you know, one presidency back November. Tuesday, the best day. You think? Um, it was a good day. I don't know. Tuesday the fifth was a good day for me too, because there were you know some great winners here in Georgia. 
But I'll I'll be honest with you. I dozed off uh, early in the evening uh, when Jones was still was ahead, but not by much. And then I woke up at around I don't know eleven, and it was all you know happening. And it was just amazing to me. It was it was it was great. And you know we we have to recognize that the African American vote really brought that home, brought it home, and especially African American women who came out in very strong numbers, like Tim said, stronger than for Obama. And, um, I mean, it was a good night. It was definitely a good night. Ties for December 5th for me. Uh, But, yeah, it was was remarkable. And the reaction, you know, Trump backpedaled and said, well, you know, he wasn't a very good candidate (laughs) after he endorsed him. And then, you know, of course, now – all the Republicans are quietly whispering to each other. I've heard, I heard this on, I think, Meet the Press this morning, that everybody's coming up to the people who were against him saying, well, you know, I really wasn't for him either. Well, you know, thankfully we didn't need, we didn't need you to come out that way because, you know, he was de- he was defeated. But but has he, has he conceded yet? He hasn't conceded, right? Not yet. No. Well, neither has Mary Norwood. No, and- yeah, and we'll get into the the lack of concessions. I think there's some kind of storylines in this uh, one that seems to be recurring since 2000. Uh, but but I do think that this was a um, just a perfect storm in here because Alabama is still such a red state. But one of the big pieces is Doug Jones was a good, credible candidate and had a you know no one really stepped up that was a credible candidate for the race even with an incredibly, incredibly historically bad candidate in Roy Moore, Roy Moore might have well underperformed Republicans' usual performance, but would have probably, you know, could have won. Um, But then a third thing is, obviously, Democrats are just so energized in turning out for these races. I mean, if you have Republican candidate A and Democratic candidate B, Democratic candidate B is doing better than in every election, seemingly, and sometimes that means wins, and sometimes that means uh, close losses. Where you know used to it was a thirty-point win for Republicans. So you put all three of those factors together, and that's where um, come two thousand eighteen, if we're going to pick off more and more seats, you're going to have to put credible candidates in races, and that's why this victory was one of the reasons I think so important. Is this is the time where you're recruiting candidates for races. And a lot of times, you know, a candidate has to think, I've got to spend my time, my money, my family's time, all these different factors. Do I really want to get into this quixotic race that has little or no hope? Well, Doug Jones' election is going to give a lot of candidates in a lot of races hope. In some cases, it may be false hope, but a lot of places it may be realistic that, you know, people pull off victories where ones were not expected um, Tim, do you think that huh. this could cause, you know, increases in um, recruitment other places? Yeah. First of all, we we I, I hope we took note of a valuable lesson here. Uh, among the many reasons we won this race is we actually had a an A list top tier candidate running. In case something this crazy happened in the Republican Party, and it did, there it was. Had we had the type of candidate uh, that, say, we had in the last Senate race, so that we'd have lost, no matter what Roy Moore said or did. But we had a credible candidate that we could point to and say, look who we've got running, folks, and uh, voters you know, we're able to say, well, yes, you've, you've got a very good candidate. Uh, so, yeah, we need, we, need to, uh, we need to look at this. You mentioned excuses. <laughs> uh, those have been funny. Uh, uh, my favorite uh, that, that they took out for a spin is, is that someone on Fox News actually said it was the Democrats' fault that 
Roy Moore lost this race because the Democrats spent the whole campaign talking about sex. Boy, that got <laughs> some. <laughs> that got cricket going, didn't it? Uh, anyway, they slice it. Uh, Roy Moore was one of the main reasons they lost. Anyway, they slice it. Donald Trump is a loser here. Anyway, they slice it. Steve Bannon is a loser here. And let me ask you this. Don't you think this is the end of Roy Moore's political career? Mm. I, I I'm do, never going to say that. I'm not going to say that. Well, he seems, uh, he seems, you know, he's so strident. But I wanted to just say one more thing about this. The other piece of this that um, is really, really important is that there was a lot of a really good ground game for Doug Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, they were on the ground. They were There were a lot of people working over there, people from Georgia, people from all over the place, um, you know, really working on the ground and and getting voters out and speaking to voters in a – in a way that they understood and a, in a, you know, giving them compelling reasons to get out and vote. So I think that's the other lesson we learn is that it really does work if we talk to voters and explain what's going on and give them good reasons to a get out and vote and B vote for this good candidate. I think you're absolutely right. We had a great candidate and that was really important, but also giving people, the information that they need and that that they can um, understand and not, you know, speaking over them or speaking down to them, but speaking Mm -hmm. to them and encouraging them to vote is really, really important. And, uh, I mean, I don't know anything about his media campaign because I didn't see any of it. But um, Well, I did. You probably did. I, I saw a lot of it, and it was very good. And forever commercial the Republicans had on television, it looked like they had two. Uh, it, it it was really it was really a well run campaign. The party really got engaged. His campaign did a good job. They had people like John Lewis over there. Cory Booker uh, was over there. Charles Barkley was outstanding. Uh, listen to this quote. I love Alabama, but at some point we've got to draw a line in the sand and say we're not a bunch of damn idiots. <laughs> That's what he said at a rally. I'm so glad he said that. Um, I, I just, uh, I, you, you know, another thing, David, that you made allusion to here. I, I know that the circumstances in this particular race obviously were unique unto themselves, but this is not the isolated incident that, you know, the Republicans are trying desperately to paint it as. Uh, It's not, let's throw Bannon under the bus, that's the end of it. Oh, it's Roy Moore's fault, that's the end of it. No, no, no. There is a line of things that are starting to string together. This race is one of them. The size and scope of the winds in Virginia and New Jersey are part of that thread. Picking up in that same special election that Catherine enjoyed on December the 5th, it, it, uh, we picked up state house and state senate seats all over the country. That's another part of it. The closeness of those congressional special elections in deep red districts around the country was another part of it. Don't y'all agree with that, that this yeah, thing I mean, is stringing he, together? Even even though we lost the Ossoff race, the 6th congressional district, the numbers uh-huh. were startling. I mean, they were yes. startling, but... The performance of uh, the John Ossoff's performance against Karen Handel, who you know I might have my beefs with her, but she's kind of a you know sort of perfect Republican suburban candidate. <clears throat> you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Two things so, there: one, she can visit North Point Mall with repercussions 
uh, that's the mall in that district, if you oh, don't know. Cold. And like two, that. honestly, I will say this, John Ossoff had one thing in his resume as good as Doug Jones as prosecutor uh, convicted of, you know, Birmingham church bombing uh, perpetrators. Um, he probably would, could have beaten Karen Handel anyway because he would have had that thing in his resume. I, Tim, I want to double down on you when you said that the people on Fox News said the Democrats were talking about sex too much. I saw a clip on Fox and Friends where there's three of them, the female host. Um, I don't know if she's the regular host because I, I value my brain cells far too much to watch that show um, live. But I saw a clip where she said that she felt that Harvey Weinstein was what caused this election, that you know this was a reaction among Alabama voters to Harvey Weinstein. I thought that was the most bizarre <laughs> thing I had heard. Um, and one more thing, um, you know, we talked about Catherine. You were talking about you know Democratic turnout and you know GOTV, and there was the, uh, an older gentleman that was you know you could tell it was Republican leaning. They're interviewing him. He said, you know, you got to give it to Democrats. They had a good uh, – they did a really good job getting their voters out. And it was kind of a, you know, conciliatory. I thought, well, that's pretty nice of that guy to say. And then he goes, but that Richard Shelby, he got he, he got involved in this race and stuck his um, nose in business that was should have been decided by Alabama voters. I, I don't think the guy realized that Richard Shelby, when you go to Washington from Alabama, that means you're from Alabama. You don't become a Washington he, D.C. He, citizen. He's also uh, an you're Alabama still an Alabamian. Um, <laughs> he's still I mean, an Alabama. There is an Alabama really, voter. Exactly. Shelby voted. <laughs> there's some some there's some delusional things going on here when you think that Harvey Weinstein was the the factor in this election. And that the senior senator from your state shouldn't have an opinion on it. Um, it was just well, nuts. Um, if well, he didn't got say that nothing. about the president. He didn't say the president yeah. should stay out of it. Yeah. No, but, but Richard no. Shelby in Alabama. I do think. <laughs> I do think that last minute Richard Shelby um, uh, move was pro- probably helped a little too. I it think did. that maybe kept, but it just, it kept some Republicans home yeah. and. Gave Republicans the, you know, um, strength to write somebody in, because he said he wrote somebody mm-hmm. in. I think it's funny. Yeah. That, who's this, like, football coach that got like? Is that right? A football player or a football coach that got all Nick? What's his name? Nick Saban. Nick Saban. Yeah. Nick Saban's the football coach in Alabama. Honestly, if somebody would have written in a football, the actual ball over Roy Moore, that would have been a better use of their vote. So, you know, but yeah, I can see Nick Saban getting tens of thousands over there. I just thought that was crazy that he got tens of thousands of votes. I mean, I'm I'm happy. I'm glad. <laughs> well, yeah. there were like 20, um, 20, nearly 23,000 write-in votes, and, and Saban did get his share of those, we know. I don't know how many of them he got. Somebody told me it was thousand. I can't remember how what the number was, but someone told me they've well, seen it. Well, well, I do want to know this: uh, um, how many votes did Roy Moore's horse get? Because because um, uh, <laughs> the, the best part of that whole campaign was that horse. Um, you know, I think one of the funniest uh, things I would, saw was a picture of that horse with a sign on it that said "Me Too." <laughs> <laughs> bizarre things, but y'all are saying, you know, will Roy, will this be the end of Roy Moore? I think he may be around, uh, but I don't think he'll even get nominated because he, he violated one of the most cardinal sins in the Republican Party. He lost. Um, well, I want to switch gears a little bit, basically just bring another um, voice on, and I want to welcome to the first time to the Kudzu Vine from Daily Coast, Miss Kelly Masias. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes. Well, well, Kelly, um, glad to have you. Uh, one, before we get into actually talking about some topics, since this is your first time on the show, uh, just take a little bit of, you know, second and tell our listeners about yourself. 
Sure. Um, I'm a uh, staff writer at Daily Coast, which is a progressive blog that focuses on news and community and politics. Um, I'm based in Washington, D.C. I'm a native Baltimorean, um, and my uh, beat at Daily Coast focuses on uh, race and gender. Yes. Okay. And you have your Ph.D. I've heard. Where did you go to school? I do. So I have my doctorate in conflict resolution, um, and I did my uh, doctoral work at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale. Yes, okay. Well, I I just always like to do that so listeners can be familiar. And now let me get into what um, brought you to my attention. I've probably read your work before, but then I was reading right after the Alabama election, which is what we've been discussing the last few minutes. Um, about uh, that you wrote on Daily Coast on Wednesday. It, it was titled Black Voters Delivered for Roy Jones, but stop thanking us and start asking why whites didn't. And I think that is a good question is shouldn't we expect all folks to vote to make better America, uh, America better, not just one racial group, but all racial groups, all genders? Um, I, I don't want to try to interpret your work. I want you to tell us you know, what was behind you writing and what were your points in the article? Sure. So uh, a couple of points. Um, So, uh, yeah, definitely a feeling of excitement and relief that Roy Moore was not elected to the Senate, Um, but also uh, noticing that um, there seemed to be a lot of uh, uh, praise and appreciation directed toward black voters in Alabama, black women in particular. And while I thought that that was um, certainly noteworthy and important, it also felt like um, there was an expectation that black voters would sort of be out um, in, in mass sort of saving everyone from, um, from doom. So, you know, we noticed that in Virginia, it was sort of much the same. Black voter turnout really made a difference for Ralph Northam in the governor's race um, and some of the local races there. Um, And even in the 2016 presidential race, um, and we know that Democrats were not successful ultimately in that race, but um, certainly um, black women in particular voted in pretty high numbers for Hillary Clinton. So the, the question, I guess, I was sort of grappling with in that piece was sort of, saying, yes, it's great, all this attention is, is, um, uh, makes sense. And let's ask, you know, why it is that white voters continually across demographics, across income level, are still voting for these very dangerous candidates. Um, so that was sort of the premise of the piece to say, yeah, let's, let's, sure, let's thank people who came out. That's really important. It's always important for Democrats um, to get out their base. And let's also ask the question why it is that election after election, when candidates are increasingly um, more dangerous and represent these really dangerous policies um, and practices, why it is that white voters continue to vote um, in large numbers for those candidates. Yes, and I I think Tim had pointed out, uh, Tim Schiffels on the coast on the show, um, that (laughs) in the last election, Fifteen percent of white voters voted for the Democrat in this one. It's somewhere between twenty-seven and thirty. So there was an improvement, but still, three out of ten is not where we really need to be. Um, well, let me pass it over to Tim since I mentioned him for more questions about Alabama and these stories, and then we may cover some other things. Tim, uh, good evening, Kelly, and thank you for being with us tonight on the Kudzu Vine. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, 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 a rather general question about voting. Um, African-Americans and young voters are, are, are two groups that have historically, especially recently, uh, voted in diminished numbers in non-presidential years as opposed to presidential election years when they come out and vote at a much heavier uh, rate. But we have seen in special elections this year, time after time, that has not been the case. They are coming out to vote in not only increased numbers, but like in the case of Alabama, big numbers. Um, 
what do you think is the main reason for this? And will this increase participation by these voters continue into the midterms next year? Tim, I think that's an excellent question. And um, it's a question that I've been asking myself a lot recently. Um, I think that there's probably a sense of understanding now after the election of Donald Trump that our democracy is more fragile than we think it is. And Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that, Uh, In the past, there's been a a sense of, uh, I don't know if it's complacency, but perhaps a sense that um, uh, elections are already sort of predestined. So um, going into 2016, um, there was a sense that uh, perhaps Hillary would win. And so people who might not have been enthusiastic about her um, may not have felt um, a a need to vote because it felt like it was already pre-written. Um, I think that in addition to that, um, we have to understand the work of of pollsters like Cornell Belcher who have said things that, like, um, from their work that um, these the voters in the past, uh, 2008 and 2012, that they were really Obama voters, that they weren't necessarily Democrats, um, but they really were uh, uh, passionate about the candidate himself, and so that made a difference. Um, But I think that going forward, I think people understand um, that this is really a key moment, that democracy is fragile, that we're seeing all kinds of policies that really can make a difference um, in individuals' day-to-day lives where people sort of felt maybe politics felt like politics as usual. Um, And so, yeah, I do think that there's a sense of energy and commitment um, and resistance, as we have been hearing for the last year, that I think will make Mm -hmm. a difference. Um, over the next year and into 2018. Okay, and one more question I want to ask you before I send it over to Catherine. Uh, 1992 has been pointed out as, quote, the year of the woman in in politics because of all the female senators uh, elected that year. But I wanted to ask you that because of not only their increased participation rates in coming forward to offer to serve, but also because of the strong block that they're voting in. I was wondering, is it possible that 2018 might be remembered as the year of the black woman? I love this question, Tim. So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, out myself a little bit and say that probably in 1992 I might have been 13 or 14. So my uh-huh. my sense of historical yeah. accuracy I, I was, might be a little older. limited. <laughs> I was older. <laughs> but but um, indeed, I you know I do I think that um, what's interesting is that Black women have always been political. You know, if you look back at the uh, civil rights movement and even beyond that, you know, we were always organizing in our communities. Um, We've always been the linchpin of our communities and churches. Um, And so Mm -hmm. we've always taken a really active role in politics. I think what's new is that um, the rest of the country is now really seeing it and really seeing how will we harness um, the the power of black women, not just as voters, but as candidates, as organizers, as volunteers, that it can really make a difference. So um, I think it could be. I would love to see 2018 as the year of the of the black woman. All right. And with that, I will send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Thank you so much for being on with us tonight. It's great to have a woman's voice along with my own. So thank you. Um, I wanted to, I want, I wanted to just bring up the, um, the ground game for Doug Jones and what, which seemed to be very important. Um, I had a a group, I, I know some of the people that were working on the campaign. I have some friends who, and colleagues who were over there working and it sounded to me, you know, from what I was hearing that there was a really, um, intense and well-organized, well-oiled machine working on the ground to get out the vote. And while I know that there was, you know, a lot of media buys and a lot of um, media for the, the campaign, do you think that this um, intense uh, ground game will be recognized by 
future candidates and the importance of working the ground, not only um, right up right before the campaign, but you know, starting. I mean, we should have been start. We should, in many places, we should have started already to get these voters activated. What do you, how do you think the efforts in Alabama might impact future, um, like 2018 midterm elections? Catherine, I think that um, the what we saw in Alabama has to be a roadmap for future elections. Um, so what I've what I've been hearing too is you know that. Um, the NAACP was really active in terms of reaching out to voters who hadn't voted in 2016, um, that they were really keeping in mind voter registration and actively uh, getting out the message around voter registration, that they were actively working to register um, uh, formerly incarcerated people to vote, that they were involved in uh, driving voters to the, the polls and whatnot. And so I think that that is a perfect example of how when there is, real attention and money and time invested in getting voters out, getting them to care about issues, talking to them, doing one-on-one outreach, that that can make a difference. And I think it has to be a strategy for 2018. I think the other piece is that um, Democrats have traditionally sort of ignored the South and felt like the South, especially in places like Alabama that are deep red states, just were unwinnable. And so uh, money and time and resources went to, you know, swing states and went to other uh, places, places to turn out where we knew that um, people would come out for Democrats. Um, I think this is, is a bellwether to say, actually, that that's not the case. We can win everywhere as long as we are really uh, upping the ground game. Yeah. Right. And I, I also think that you can't just swoop down three weeks before the election and expect to get, you know, good results. You know, uh, we have to be working. I mean, I work for a nonprofit that does advocacy work all over the South and uh, which will remain unnamed. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But um, we recognize that it has to be an ongoing, constant um, messaging campaign and outreach to voters and about issues as well as about voting, but not necessarily specific about Democratic or Republican voting, but finding candidates that you believe in. And also the importance, and I'm so glad that this is finally being talked about, the the incredible importance of in electing municipal and state-level um, candidates and representatives because they really do have an impact on our lives, and it's how we build a bench. Like one of the things I always say when I'm talking about this with our supporters is that President Obama didn't just walk out of a cloud and become the president. <laughs> he had been a state senator. He'd been a community organizer. You know, I mean, and then he was a senator. It's, it's like we have to we have to find those candidates, those people who embrace our values, and then support them and, and support their ambition to, to, to um, climb higher. And uh, I hope that we are finally getting that message because that's what the Republicans have been doing for 40 years. Absolutely. And, Catherine, I would agree with you um, to the point where I would say that one thing I think Democrats need to do better is to understand that relationships matter. And relationships are not just about what we want from somebody, you know, three weeks before an election, but really, you know, what do people care about? You know, what what do they want to see for their communities and their families um, and their economic condition and sort of all of those things? Um, And so the earlier we start building relationships, not just about a particular candidate, not just about a particular um, ballot initiative, but really, you know, what do people care about and how does, what is their mission and, and vision for the world and how do we help support that, I think the better off we'll be. Exactly. We can't, we ju- we can't jump to the conclusion that because someone is uh, a, a Latina America, American born in this country with a family that was born in this country, that immigration is going to be the first and most important thing in their mind. That they're going to be thinking about economics and healthcare, just like I think that we we make those mistakes a lot. Just because um, an African you're talking to an African American doesn't mean they're concerned about crime or urban or, or urban planning. They might live in the suburbs and they might be just as concerned about 
economics and healthcare as every other. You know, it's like it's. I think we make those assumptions all the time, all the time. Definitely, and, I, and you're absolutely right. We should be listening more than we're talking. Absolutely, and when we talk about identity politics, one of the things that feels frustrating for me is that um, we don't understand uh, people of color or women or young people as really diverse. And so there's, there's likely no one issue that people are galvanizing around. There's a lot exactly. of issues that people care about. Exactly. Like just because you're young doesn't mean you, you're concerned about college tuition. You Absolutely. might be, but it's not, it's not, it's not <laughs> they might be more concerned about health care for personal reasons that we don't know until we sure. listen yep. to them. Or, so. or jobs or anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your writing and for being on with us tonight. I'm going to pass it back to David. Great. Thanks. Yes. Well, Kelly, uh, another topic I want to talk to you about is um, we're speaking about uh, race and gender, and the only African-American woman in the Trump administration was Omarosa. Now, she, uh, I guess, got to know Donald Trump when she was a contestant on The Apprentice. Um, she kind of had more of a behind-the-scenes role. It wasn't like she was, uh, you know, filling in for Sarah Huckabee Sanders and stuff, but she was there, and this week she exited. Um, and a lot of people were not really sympathetic to her plight, let's just say. Uh, kind of tell me, uh, what do you think elicited the reaction to her leaving, um, you know, in the media this past week? Sure. So, David, you know, I don't think anybody was sympathetic to her departure. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I really don't think anybody was sad to see her go. But, um, you know, as I thought a little bit about that and what I would offer to your listeners, um, I, I really wanted to be clear that in my mind, I don't think it's just about the fact that Amarosa worked for a Republican president. Um, and, and what what helps me to understand that is thinking about people like Condoleezza Rice and, you know, Robert Trainer and some other high-profile um, black folks who have worked for Republican administrations. Now, I, I think that um, black America has always had a tension around um, uh, probably uh, black folks who are Republicans for the most part, and yet I feel like there's also an understanding that we're diverse and that there's a lot of forgiveness and understanding around where people fall politically. I think um, why there was a lack of sympathy for her in particular um, had to do with her association with a very toxic president. Um, and from the beginning, you know, when he announced his candidacy in 2015, Donald Trump was clear about using race using ethnicity, using religion, um, using gender, all kinds of things to really divide people. So I think that that drew a hard line in the sand for a lot of people um, in terms of why they, they sort of felt um, as if they wanted to uh, turn their backs on Omarosa. Um, the other thing I would say is that, you know, Omarosa's position uh, in theory, what was communicated out was that she was, the, she was a special assistant to the president and that she was supposed to be the director of African-American outreach and to be coordinating with historically black colleges and universities. Um, I'm not sure that anybody saw any of those efforts. Uh, so if she was doing outreach to the community, um, I'm not aware of any real uh, tangible outreach. I know that in February during Black History Month, there were a bunch of photo opportunities and sort of things that happened with uh, prominent leaders in the community, prominent leaders at uh, historically black colleges and universities. But there was nothing um, that tangibly came out of her work later. And so there were a lot of black people who felt like, well, we don't really know what she's doing. Um, we have, see her having this long history with this, this president. And in the last few years, this president has shown himself to be harmful and support and advocate for harmful policies uh, that really damage um, race relations. So I think that is why people were so um, uh, un un unapologetic in their reaction to seeing her go. Yes, and it was always kind of vague, her role, and you're right, um, th those efforts back in February, it seemed like the only thing that was it, Donald Trump learned about Frederick Douglass and may have thought he was still living <laughs> The way right. he spoke about him. Um, I'm going to let <laughs> Catherine and Tim ask any follow-up questions on Omarosa before we let you go. Catherine and Tim. 
Oh, I don't have any questions about Amoroso. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I don't either, but I do have one more question, if that's okay. Go ahead. It's Uh, fine with me. uh, My question is, we have seen a, a, a rise, a frightening rise of, I guess, what we would call right wing populist extremism brought, you know, to bear by this president and his campaign beginning in 2015. And it almost threw all of us, uh, the whole country, backwards on their heels against this onslaught. Do you feel, though, now that once again we are on the offensive against this thing, that we have turned some sort of corner, especially considering the new polling, the new election results, things like this, and, and, and that we're, we're going to wipe this form of extremism or out or at least push it to the back burners. Um, I'm not fully sure. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I got an uh, email from my grandmother this, this weekend, and she was talking about an incident in my hometown in Baltimore um, where um, at a, a Catholic all-boys school, um, the N-word had been spray-painted in different places across the school. And, and my grandmother sort of was lamenting to me that she felt like it was Trump's fault. And my response to her was, you know, I, I hope you know that Trump didn't invent racism, I think he's played it very well to his advantage, um, but, you know, he's not the cause of it. Um, so I, I, I hope that um, what we see is that, again, what I've talked about uh, people understanding that democracy is fragile. I think people may be waking up to the idea that we have to work for something and that all of the, the diversity and um, freedom of thought and uh, all of the things that make this American project what it is and great require effort. Um, so I, I would hope that if anything, people would be really willing to work for things now in a way that is different than before. And I think what we are seeing is that people understand that we can no longer be complacent about stuff because while for years maybe we thought we had advanced and progressed, um, it's clear that there are people, and I don't think they're a majority, but I think they have loud enough voices um, that want to see us go backwards. And so I think uh-huh. that people uh, may be feeling a sense of urgency now and a leaning into conversations that they weren't willing to do before. So I would say uh, I think that's where we are at this moment, that people are, uh, their eyes are open, that they're engaged, and I think time will tell in terms of how um, active they will really be in terms of saying that, no, we, we don't want to be this place. You know, we don't want to be, um, yeah, we don't want to go backwards. Well, then, will history record this period uh, when Donald Trump came to power simply as an experiment gone awry, perhaps? I think about it all Let us hope. <laughs> I think about it all the time. Uh, I I don't know. I uh, I've heard people say it's sort of like the last gasp of of folks who are really intent on keeping us in this place that is not productive, that is not diverse. Um, and I I would hope that that's the case. I think we know history is recording it regardless. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that how history will regard it. Um, could possibly be that, you know, we take two steps forward and then we take a couple back and then we keep moving forward. And I, my, it is my deep hope that we will continue to move forward. Um, and I see us moving forward in different ways, even in the midst of this presidency. Uh, excellent. Excellent analysis. Thank you for that. David? Yes. Well, thank you for um, joining us on the Kudzu Vine tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Yes. <clears throat> Thank um, you. Thank you. Um, and that was Kelly Mossius. And if you want to read her writings, um, she's Daily Coes. If you just search, um, you know, her name on there, you'll see her as a tagged <laughs> author. She writes quite frequently. 
penned uh, multiple articles just this past week. Um, well, guys, we got just a little while longer on the show, and, um, you know, I will tell y'all, usually we go ahead and we um, tag the show, you know, non-adult, non-explicit, you know, it's friendly for everybody, maybe PG, um, but we might need to tag this show um, explicit and um, adults only because I'm going to go ahead and read seven banned words. Uh, I'll be ready. Okay, I don't want y'all to be shocked. Vulnerable, entitlement, diversity, transgender, fetus, evidence-based, and science-based. Now, y'all take a deep breath. I know y'all have heard a lot of dirty language there. Um, Seriously, these are seven phrases that the Trump administration has prohibited the CDC Center for Disease Control not to use in any of their communications. Uh, Catherine, what in the world's going on? I don't know. It's uh, what's next, book, book burning? I mean, it it is. It seems um, you know funny and ridiculous, but it's very scary because those the, that those are the those are the words and phrases that we use in science and healthcare on a regular basis. Those are not like unusual words. And the idea that they would be banned from communications from the Centers for Disease Control is really, um, it's um, menacing. It, it's scary. Um, and, and I don't understand, and I, I think I said this one before with the show when we were talking, it seems so ridiculous that we're focused, of all the things to talk to the CDC about, the words you shouldn't use don't seem to be at the top of the list. You know, what about opioids? What about um, maternal mortality? What about, um, you know, there, um, there's a million other things that, uh, that they should be, that the administration should be concerned about that don't include banned language. Yeah. Tim, was Catherine's science-based analysis making you feel vulnerable? <laughs> well... I tell you that that you people would use science based on a family adult American show. I I find that shocking. And, and, you know, today, uh, I I do have a question. They said that they are banning these seven words in official documents being prepared for next year's budget. What in the world does stuff like Science-based fetus transgender. What what does all that have to do with the budget? I mean, what what does that have to do with the spending bill? How is that going to affect the spending bill that I don't know? Most Americans are never even going to read because it's like eleven hundred pages, and the average American probably doesn't read uh, 1,100 pages in their life, especially after they get out of school. Well, well, what, are the, what are they trying to even do here? I, I don't get this. They were not given a reason that this change was even made. Uh, the lady who made the announcement said, I don't know. I was just, this is my marching orders, and I was told to do it, report this, and that's what I'm doing. Well, what does any of this even mean? Take your best guess, David. (laughs) I I have no idea. I I don't know. I mean, really, all this is going to get them that I can see is another article where they look silly, they look uneducated. I mean, this this is probably going to get more attention than, say, uh, Sam Clovis or the the attorney that they put up for the judgeship that didn't have – like a first-year uh, law school student knowledge of the law. I mean, and John Kennedy, a Republican um, from Louisiana, said he won't support him. I mean, it just it's this trend of just these unintellectual characters running rampant in the uh, Trump administration, and then that's where you're going to lose places like the suburbs. Uh, going back to Alabama, Shelby County, it just keeps trending. Further and further Democratic. It's not Democratic, but it's not rock rib 80% Republican anymore. Uh, North Fulton County, Forsyth County, Cherokee County, 
uh, places that Catherine mentioned the 5th District. I think this is the kind of stuff that's going to kill them in the educated suburbs because people are not going to want to be associated with a, pa- a party that just rejects knowledge. And that's what I think this is, is a rejection uh, of knowledge. Uh, Catherine, okay. go ahead, Tim. Oh, I was just going to ask one more question, I, and and maybe Catherine can take a stab at yeah, this one because yeah. we're back into Bizarro world again. <laughs> uh, the lady who made the announcement was asked, "Well, if we can't use those seven words or terms, what are the replacement or suggested words or terms we're supposed to use instead?" Well, she didn't know she wasn't given that information, so no replacement words were offered for the banned words that they couldn't use. Uh, Catherine, you want to try to explain any of that? <laughs> well, I, I think I can, I can say with some confidence that they want to replace the word fetus with unborn baby, because because oh. they want to they want to you know drive that home. Uh, I don't know that. I'm just guessing, um, and that is you know a totally ridiculous uh, replacement. Um, and then, <clears throat> and I, I don't understand like how I I I, I don't know. It's bizarre world to me too. That's the only one I have uh, any idea of. I mean, I think they want to eliminate the use of transgender because they don't want to acknowledge the idea or um, reality of of transgender individuals. Um, um. I would imagine that diversity is just, you know, that's just some liberal, you know, idea that doesn't. Isn't important. The science-based and fact-based is that were is that the other two? Um, that's evidence-based con, that's and science-based. Evidence-based. Yeah, yeah you, we wouldn't want to use evidence-based. Oh, and then they also said part of the statement was that they, uh, you know, wanted to use local that you could use local, um, some kind of local language. I'm like, okay, so. You can't use national fact-based information, but you can use local. I, I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. It's the whole thing is ridiculous. Well, well, well okay, now my next question is for David. What does any of this got okay. to do with the budget? The budget. Really nothing. It's some kind of, you know how you talk about Pyrrhic victories and you chase windmills. I mean, this is some person, and I don't. I really don't think it's, you know, Donald Trump himself. I think it's someone in his administration has decided that this is a good idea. To me, it smacks more of maybe somebody under Mike Pence because there are some socially conservative charged things like fetus and transgendered. I I have to wonder, vulnerable? When is vulnerable? Uh, When did that even become politically charged one way or the other? I know science has become politicized and evidence apparently has become politicized and we know how they talk about entitlements but vulnerable I did, that one got, that was just completely out of left field do either y'all have any idea why that's on the list no that one was uh, uh, I didn't understand that either I mean I don't understand any of it but that one you was know, you know, out of character for the list yeah the guys uh from what I've been able to glean here, the lady who made the announcement doesn't have any idea what was going on or why she was doing what she was doing. And she was the official charged with making this major announcement. This is how bad we've gotten now. When the messenger doesn't even understand the message anymore. Good grief. The advantage of the advantage of that is then if they don't understand it, then they can't answer any questions about it, so they don't get grilled on it. They just say, this is my statement, this is what you know I've been told to say, and I don't know anything more. I think that's, not, uh, that, that's an intentional um, move. I do. Uh, 
Oh, boy. I, I still want to wake up from this nightmare at some point and find out this was all all a dream the last two years. Did yeah, you ever well, think well, you'd live to see this? I, no, Any I don't think anybody predicted this because, remember, the whole of the campaign, uh, there were many naysayers uh, as we talked to uh, either us or guests about Donald Trump winning the nomination, how long it would go on, much less the actual presidency. Well, let's um, talk about I, – I, I wonder if he can say science-based when he uh, announced his science initiative, but Donald Trump um, says that he, he's, you know – uh, wants to put money in NASA to go to the moon on the way to Mars. I don't know if this is one trip and it'll be like a you know a bathroom break slash gas fill up or what, but he wants to go back to the moon for the first time since 1972. Uh, I guess that's part of making America great again, um, doing things we did in the past, and then go to the moon. Um, now, obviously, I think. For multiple presidents at NASA, the moon has been a long-term goal. But apparently Donald Trump actually said that he wanted to go during his second term at the latest, which would be just beyond wildly optimistic as a timeline. Um, Catherine, what is he thinking here with this um, moon trip and then this expediated trip to Mars? Who knows? He's not going to fund it. <laughs> like, is he going to is he going to fund it? Like, I mean, that's going to just make the. I mean, I I can't even. I I just don't believe him. I don't believe that he really um, wants to go to Mars. He doesn't understand the um, importance of space exploration. <clears throat> and just the importance of attempting it. So a lot of the things that we learn when we're uh when NASA is beginning these explorations doesn't really have as much to do I mean it has a lot to do with space exploration, but it also has impact on all other kinds of science. So the idea that he would be in support of of you know an adva- advancing the timeline for reaching Mars, it's just he just doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm sorry, I don't know that much. I'm not a I'm not a space uh, you know expert. I know a lot more than he does. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Tim, what do you think is going on here with returning to the moon uh, and then going to Mars? Well, all that's just a very grandiose thing that he did. Uh, all that talk very with a couple, yeah, a couple of astronauts standing there and whatnot. Space Policy Directive One is another one of those things that Donald Trump signs and turns around and shows it to everybody. Look at me, look at what I did. Um, it. it uh, of course, pushes NASA in the direction of planning another trip to the moon that they had not planned on. They went there several times, culminating in the last one 45 years ago, and essentially it's a great rock in space. And if they're not going to build some sort of base there as a jumping-off point into deep space, then I don't understand why go there at all. Uh, Trump, though, said this would established, quote, a foundation for an eventual mission to Mars. Not sure what he what he meant there. The the part about working with other countries now to explore deep space, to go in together, pool our resources, spend our money together, use our brain power and manpower together uh, to explore space, all that sounds good. What about the budget? You know Bush yeah. had these grandiose plans for NASA, too, and they all got washed away uh, in the reality of the budget. And do, does Donald Trump think that there's a lot of money laying around in this uh, in, in the federal budget that this Republican Congress is putting together uh, to to you know do all this stuff that he's talking about? When I say I I I'll have to say that to believe it, won't y'all? 
Yeah. Yeah, I I think what it is is Donald Trump likes to sign the big, you know, resume fault, mm-hmm. you know, pick out menus is some column. And he, of course, he did it. He showed everybody. Um, and I think he likes the big moves he thought would get attention. Also, I do think with going to the moon, you know, you had these um, larger-than-life characters like John Glenn and Alan Shepard and, and others, Osborne. Uh, Armstrong, and that people knew when they were heroes to people. And now the special program is very task-oriented, and you don't have these characters become national celebrities, heroes. And he's so into national celebrity. Uh, we recapture that, although I don't know that you recapture that uh, the same because it's not new going to the moon. It's something that they've done and then saw no value in moving forward. It's better with the space shuttle program to be able to reuse the rocket or reuse the ships, if you will, not rockets. And then now they've moved away from that. And these scientists that have studied and researched and thought long and hard about it, longer than the three of us or anybody probably in the Trump administration, they know what the next best thing is. And sometimes you have to trust those people that are experts, and he's not very good at that. Um, well, guys, it's uh, been to the Kudzu Vine. Uh, just a little housekeeping. We won't be on next Sunday since it's actually Christmas Day. We're going to do a show between Christmas Day and New Year's Day. But until then, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, good night guys. Hi, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united 